We are Crossroads Grace Church. Our purpose is to lead people to discover Jesus and follow Him fully. This week's message is taught by our teaching pastor, Brian Hunt. From wherever you're listening, we hope that you are challenged and encouraged by this week's message. I mean, when you think about God sometimes and, and believing, uh, it can be difficult because you feel like there are so many unanswered questions. Man, I know I do. And guys, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. And in the times that we're in right now, this whole COVID-19 thing and the unrest that's in our world, it can be, be really easy to have a long list of questions for God. Uh, this is why this series that we're going to be in the middle of and we're starting today is so, so important. It's, it's called Asking for a Friend. And it's focused on answering the questions that we all have in our hearts and in our minds. But, but a lot of times you hear people ask questions by asking for a friend because, goodness, they want to deflect all of that curiosity onto their friend or, 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 or somebody that really wants to know. Not, not them, but who wants to really know. But, but we do this uh, with more than just God questions. Uh, for example, I, I kind of uh, took to the Internet and found a few of these. You know, for instance, um, can you cook bacon with a hair straightener? Asking for a friend. Uh, do, do seahorses, do they taste like shrimp? Asking for a friend. Uh, I like this one. How long after a walk do you wait until you take a nap? Is it 15 minutes or is it 20 minutes? Asking for a friend. Or, or how about this one? Does anyone know how many calories you burn standing on a scale crying? <laughs> asking for a friend. Right? We, we all have these questions that we're asking, but but the reality is, is that there are some questions that we, we wish our friends could ask that are a little bit deeper also. Uh, they have a deeper meaning to them and they aren't as like testable as, let's say, bacon on a, bacon on a straight iron. I'm, I know some people out there are going to do that this morning. I understand. But, but people want to know, is there a God? Uh, is, is, if there is a God, why does all this terrible stuff happen around us? Um, why are Christians so judgmental and hypocritical? And, and what's the deal with that? And so as we sit in a world that is, is sheltering at home and is afraid not to be within six feet of each other, it's, it's only natural that these questions will bubble up. And guys, listen, if you're joining us here from one of our Easter services, I just want to welcome you. Welcome you back. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad that you're with us here this morning at Crossroads. Uh, because if we're honest with ourselves, all of us, all of us wrestle with these very same questions. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, we all have questions for God. And guess what? They normally are not asked in the middle of everything going great. It's usually when it's really hard times. So, so the goal of asking for a friend is to systematically answer three questions over the course of the next three weeks. We want to try to tackle and, and wrestle with the questions people are asking. And we're going to do that objectively, but also faithfully. So before we, uh, we dive in, Here's what I want to do for us all this morning on this Sunday morning. I want to clear some debris and want to set a foundation. And number one is this. Not every question will be answered completely because there are volumes of information that's written even just about one of these questions. So what I want to do is begin a discussion. Just begin a discussion to have us consider and to seek answers to them with reason and also with intellect, but also with an open heart for the possibility that there might just be more that we can comprehend that maybe, just maybe, only God can fulfill. That's number one. Number two is this. I, I also want us to know that it's okay to disagree. In our modern world, we don't like people that don't like what we believe. 
Honestly, I think that goes against everything that we know to be true as human beings, though. There will always be things that we don't see eye to eye on because, guess what? We're different people. But, but nowadays, our world is, is so enmeshed in this idea of tolerance. We scream in on every social media post into the uppermost reaches of our government. We demand that people are tolerant toward our ideas. But I think that we might have lost sight of something. And that is the real definition of tolerance. See, tolerance is simply having the ability to tolerate an opinion or a viewpoint that's different than ours. It's giving respect and awareness. It's giving a real realization that our views might differ from another person's worldview. And, and listen, Christ followers need to do this just as much as people that don't believe in God. Everyone needs to do this. However, since we've turned tolerance into vilifying another viewpoint than our own, we've actually created a big, big problem. Because this type of tolerance burns bridges. Burns bridges that we could have walked across to be able to see another perspective and understand another person's opinion. And instead, we're left screaming across a chasm of disagreement at one another. And what we do is we create a dangerous us versus them mentality that will mute any sort of dialogue. That's not our goal. Our desire is to understand each other so that we create a more of a dialogue, not less of a dialogue, around these subjects. That's why we're doing it. So I'm also going to ask you to do this third thing. I'm going to ask you to dig in. That's right. Every week, I'm going to ask you to dig in with me. It's really not fair to ask these big questions and then not actually listen to the answers or dig in. Right? It's just not. So, so don't check out. I want you to consider these questions together. And to do that, each time we're together, we're going to ask each other. And I'm going to ask you to access all of who you are. Your mind, your heart, and your soul. All three of these are critical to finding the answers to the questions that we're seeking. So, for instance, today, I'm going to lean a little bit more into the intellectual, okay? A little bit more into the intellectual today, and that's a good thing. I want you to stick with me. Don't doze off. Don't start checking Instagram. Because if you want to ask the question, you got to at least hang out for the answers. So, would you give God 30 minutes of your full attention and just see what happens when you do that? But just know that all of the information is going to be great. But I pray that it leads you to transformation of your heart and of your soul. And then finally, fourth thing that we're going to try to do. We're going to want to seek truth. We will seek truth. Although we will not agree on everything, I think it is safe to say we can at least agree on this. We all want to know what truth is. And truth seeking, that's not a new thing. It's really not a new thing at all. Even when we see way back in the interaction between Pontius Pilate and Jesus. Yeah, if we remember back to Easter, there was a scene before Jesus was crucified that Pilate was determining whether or not Jesus deserved to die. And he's interrogating Jesus. And as he's doing that, we read this interaction in the Gospel of John. John 18, starting in verse 37. Pilate says, you are a king then, Jesus answered. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. So Pilate was torn. He was torn about seeing an innocent man in front of him about to die. But the deepest desires of his heart was for truth. This is the question we all want the answer to. What is truth? 
Because where the truth is at, it should be exactly where we want to be, right? Because we don't want to live our lives by a lie. We don't. So our singular pursuit is to find the truth. And even if you don't believe in God here today, and I am so glad that you're here, you're questioning about God and you're wrestling with God. I'm so glad that you're with us here today, this Sunday morning. You still, all of us, you still want what Pontius Pilate wanted 2,000 years ago. You want the answer to the question, what is truth? And I know what some of you might be thinking right now. You might be thinking, well, Pastor B, like some of these questions you're asking don't have tangible physical evidences to know that they're true. And for the most part, you're kind of right. But I want you to think about this with me for just a second. Uh, Imagine that you were um, an officer or a detective. And and as you were um, going on to a crime scene somewhere, you, you come across things that are very obvious to you. There might be a weapon laying on the ground. You might catch a guy with like holding a bag of money like in the cartoons. Or, or, or maybe there's video proof of you banging on a garbage can to give the hitter signs like the Houston Astros. You know, important stuff like that. Easy things. You can look at it. But even if you came to a scene where none of that was there, there are always clues that are around you. You just can't see them with the naked eye. They're called fingerprints. And one of the best things that law enforcement uses to find them are those little brushes. You ever see those little brushes, right? You you dust things all over the place and then all of a sudden use that black ink and all of a sudden the the fingerprint just kind of appears. That's what you're trying to do. They they dust it with a powder. All of a sudden it's there, but you're uncovering things that you couldn't see at first. This is what we're trying to do. Remember, we are in search of the truth. And to do that, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at things from a logical sense. We're going to look for the fingerprints, even those things that are based off of tangible proof and intangible facts, but they're going to be right in front of us to be able to deal with. So the other thing I want to do is up front with you today is this, and it's to my Christian friends. I want, you, I want to let you know my approach to this conversation today. And so I'm going to be using my Bible a little bit less than normal. And, and it's for a very specific reason. And the reason is, is not that I'm anti-Bible. I love me some Bible. I believe that this is God's gift to us to guide our lives back to Jesus in every possible way. I believe in the Bible 100%. But, but here's the deal. To someone that doesn't believe in God or is trying to find their way back to God, we need perspective from where they're coming. We need to have tolerance to where they're coming. So to them, why should an ancient text talking about someone they don't believe in affect their life or be used to prove his existence? Guys, there needs to be more of a proof than a contrite, well, God just says so. Right? Biblical argumentation is great, but it doesn't make sense until you can give a credible reason to why God exists, why you should believe in God at all. Which is why one of the coolest things about God is the mountain of extra biblical proof that he has given us. Now, extra biblical is actually a fancy phrase that just means more than the Bible tells us so. It's outside of the Bible. We're going to learn things that are extra biblical truths to begin our discussion about these questions that we're going to tackle. And so to begin with, what we're going to do is that we're going to start start tackling the first most obvious asking for a friend question this morning. And that is, how can you believe in something you can't see? It's really a question of God's existence. How can you believe in a God when you can't see him? 
And I believe that there is really more to this question than just like proof of the rationale for God. I think there's deeper reasons. I think this question is littered with all kinds of curiosities and longings that are inside us all. And I pray that we can navigate through all of those as we go. Uh, but, but these days, the reaction most people give when you talk about God, honestly, is more kind of sympathetic amusement more than a personal attack. Because most people think that those people that believe in God are on the same level as somebody that, I don't know, believes in Harry Potter, for instance. Because without visual proof, we will chalk God up to a fantasy or to a moral crutch to lean on for weak-minded people. And here's why. The world that we live in right now is becoming more and more post-Christian. This means that with every passing generation, there's less and less interest in the things of God. But can I say that this is why it's more important than ever to understand and answer why we believe? It's so that we don't fall into this easy scenario of answering things, well, just because. That's why we believe. But as Dr. Tim Keller once said, he says, A faith without, some ana- without doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. So what in the world does that even mean? You're right. What is antibodies and what does that even mean? This isn't amazing. Like, let's just think about this for our current world right now. Isn't it amazing how we all have become professional microbiologists and immunologists as a result of this whole COVID thing? I mean, let's think, like, like people that failed basic, come on, be honest. You failed basic high school chemistry, and most likely you couldn't tell the difference between a ladybug and a VW bug if I gave you a million dollars. Now all of a sudden, everybody's an expert on disease transmission and the heat sensitivity of viruses. I mean, where was all this ability back in high school? Come on. I feel like there's a bunch of Uncle Ricos out there for like from a Napoleon Dynamite wishing they could just go back in time and do it all over again. Hey. I don't know why I sound like Ross Perot right there. I'm not sure what happened there. But um, anyway, right, antibodies, they're in our bodies and they help fight foreign things that get into our system. They are there to root out all the junk that's causing our body to run improperly. That's what antibodies do. And doubt in our life helps us fight out complacency in our faith. It can also help us root out things that are not true. Because when you doubt, you ask questions which makes you seek answers, which makes you look for facts, which then helps you find the truth. We should not be afraid of doubt because doubt only lets us grab a hand, more of a handful of truth when we do. But as we begin to answer this question of God's existence, I'm going to ask you a question also. And here's the question. What are other things that you believe in that you can't see? Right now, in your living rooms, wherever you might be this Sunday morning, ask yourself that question. What are things that you believe in but can't see? Write them down, talk about them, whatever it might be. I think it's important to embrace this reality before we get too far, because at the end of our time, we won't be able to walk away with a handful of God. Just like you can't have a handful of air or love or joy, even though you know they exist. So seeing is not always the requirement for believing. But let's analyze what we can see in our world. And maybe we can see if there are any, you know, fingerprints of God that we can uncover. So let's start off by looking at something huge, okay? Something big, like the universe. 
Like the, like the entire universe. One reason that people will say they don't believe in God is that there's a belief that the universe has always been there. If the universe has always been, then why would I need God? So let's do this. Let's look first at how God shows himself through our universe. And, and what I'm going to do is that I'm going to call this the existence of the universe. And I'm going to begin with a quote from the late Stephen Hawking, a brilliant cosmologist and theoretical physicist, but also atheist. He once said these words. He says, one can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. The laws of physics can explain the universe without the need for a creator. In essence, he says that science can actually explain away the need for God. But the problem with Mr. Hawking's argument is that it flies in the face of what science tells us itself, especially physics. Physics is simply the branch of science that tells us about matter and energy within nature. And one of the most brilliant men in all of history was the physicist Albert Einstein. You, you might know him as the E equals MC squared guy or the dude that needs some more hair conditioner. That guy. But Albert actually made a greater discovery back in 1915 when he developed the general theory of relativity. And through his research of physics and the universe, Einstein was able to trace the development of the universe back to a singular moment, a beginning, if you will. And he called this beginning the singularity event. But today we might know it as the Big Bang. It's the moment scientists say the universe exploded into existence. So how did his theory, though, Einstein's theory, hold up when science got more advanced? Because the first satellite wasn't even launched into outer space until 1957 by the Russians. But what the Hubble telescope actually tells us in 1990 changed everything. That project told us more about the universe than ever before. Because Hubble went deeper and further into the vastness of the universe than any satellite has ever gone before. And what was amazing was that the Hubble telescope confirmed what Einstein knew back in 1915. It showed scientifically that the universe was in fact expanding, which means that it's only logical that if you have, if you reverse an expanding universe, it has to come back to a singular point to which Einstein's theory of a singular event had to have happened. The universe has a birthday, but that doesn't necessarily prove God. It just proves that at some point, something happened. So in order to be thorough, we have to couple Einstein's findings with the Kalem cosmological argument. That sounds fancy, doesn't it? Right? The Kalem cosmological argument says this, whatever begins to exist has a cause. It means that something cannot come out of nothing. I can't just all of a sudden poof and a bottle of water shows up there, although I'd love a bottle of water, right? It has to have something to cause it to be there. I can't just wave my hands and make something appear. But here is where, if you don't believe in God, you might be saying, okay, time out here, time out. Let me, let me see this. If everything has a point when it was created, then when was God created, Pastor B? Good question. Might even cause you to kind of sink back and say, it's interesting. However, I would ask that we look closely at something. The actual cosmological argument again. Calum's principle says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. As Christians, we believe that God doesn't have a beginning. He has been and will always be. He has never not 
been. Excuse the double negative. I'll bring us back to the Bible here for just a second, because when we read in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John would actually talk about Jesus, who as Christians we believe is God. And in John chapter 1, he talks about the Word. But if you replace Word with Jesus, who that actually is, you'll understand. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has ever been. Our God is outside the laws of physics and the laws of the natural world. Why? Because he is spiritual and not natural. The spiritual does not need to play by the same rules of the natural because he is not bound by them. And he would have to be this way in order to create from nothing. So based upon proven science research in the fields of cosmology and physics, what we can understand here is that there is more to it. And, and if we couple it with the belief of the create of the of Christian faith, here's where this line of reasoning develops. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bear with me in a second. You might even take a screenshot to kind of think through this again. But I want you to think through logically with this with me. The first thing is whatever begins to exist must have a cause to exist. That's what the Kalem principle just tells us. But, but Einstein told us the second thing, that the universe began to exist. Therefore, based on those two things, the universe must have a cause for it to exist. Those are scientifically proven. But then we add in the Christian perspective that then says the characteristics of the cause of the universe are consistent with the attributes of God beyond time and space, not held to the natural world, which leads us to the final thing. Therefore, the cause of the universe must be God. Take a picture of that. Think about that for a second. Read it back through again. But that's what we just, we just analyzed. But notice something. This isn't a case of the Bible says so. This is science and reason and the facts, the fingerprints that are pointing us to this very conclusion. But I will respect this, that some people might say it's not enough. Because some will say, well, God didn't create the things that we see. Uh, so so that, that everything just simply happened by the Big Bang. The Big Bang did all the hard work. Which brings us to the next area I'd like us to consider. And it's the exactness of everything. The exactness of everything. And to do this, I'm going to put God on the sidelines again for a second. And have us consider a few things directly from science one more time. And we'll start off with the Big Bang itself. Scientists have analyzed this bang and they have determined a lot of things about it were it to have happened. And one of which is that this explosion that was said to have caused the Big Bang, if it had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th power or one part in a trillion, 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 the universe would not be able to exist because one of two things would have happened. Either it would have collapsed back in on itself or it have expanded so quickly that stars would never have been able to form. So the chances of the universe being created by this perfect bang are microscopically small. But let's assume for just a second that the universe defied all the odds. Then we have to actually consider the planet that we live on known as Earth. And on our Earth, there are four natural forces that work on it. 
But I want us to consider one of them, gravity, for a second, because we're the most familiar with gravity. Because gravity is what keeps our planet in orbit around the sun, the moon in orbit around the earth, and keeps us from floating off into space. That's what it does. But scientists have all agreed that if the force of gravity were to change by one part in 10,000 billion, billion, billion relative to the total range of the other strengths, those other four natures of a force of nature's, conscious life would be virtually impossible anywhere in the universe. In the chance of another planet, you might think, maybe there's another planet out there just like the Earth, that's becoming less and less um, agreed upon in scientific circles. Because scientists have discovered that there are at least 24 characteristics that must be in place in order to have a planet like Earth. 24 in order to sustain life. There are so many factors that have to be in place, it's mind-blowing. It is highly improbable, but the Big Bang could have produced another planet like Earth. Highly improbable. But let's do this next. Take us from the massive universe. Let's take us down to, from our planet to even something even smaller. In fact, the smallest thing that we know of. Let's consider the atom itself. And an atom is the basic unit of matter. And it defi- it's the defining structure of, of everything, of all the elements. An atom comes from the Greek word atomos. Atomos. And a means not. And tamos means cut. So atomos literally means uncuttable, undivisible. It is the smallest part of indivisible matter that everything is based on, including you and me. And found within each atom, there are three particles that you might have known. Going back to science class. There's a nucleus that's made up of protons and neutrons. And then there's these electrons that go all around it. Protons are positive, electrons are negative, neutrons are neutral. And they are all in a complete balance with each other. And scientists have analyzed this atomic dance with each atom and they've discovered that, let's just take for the neutron, for example, that if the neutron wasn't exactly as it was, about 1.001 times the mass of a proton, that all the protons would decay into neutrons or all the neutrons would decay into protons and life would not be possible. This shows that even the smallest building blocks of life are so exact that even the most microscopic adjustment to them deconstructs the entire organism, making life impossible. So what do we do with all these facts? Figures, fancy science words, what do we do? Well, I want us to consider this quote from Paul Davies, one of the most leading physicists and cosmologists and actually somebody that has no belief in God that I know of. Let's consider what he says. He says, I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant to be here. Now, why would he say this? Why would he say this? Because the facts are so overwhelming that they point to this being the logical conclusion. Listen to what author Mark Middleberg's conclusion on his research of this says. He says, the probability of these factors converging is so infinitesimal small that many cosmologists and astrophysicists now admit that it is more reasonable to believe that a divine designer was involved than to assume it all happened by chance. The universe is better explained by a creator than by explosive chance. And this is the conclusion, not just by our feelings or by religion, but by logic and fact and overwhelming reason. 
These are the uncovered fingerprints of God. And my friends, these are just three examples of scientific proof of rationale. There's so many more that we could point out to, but they will all lead us to the very same conclusion. But with, also with this, something will also come up. And that's something that we have to wrestle with now. And it's this question. That if the world didn't happen by chance, then how did it happen? How did it happen? And I'm telling you that science will not have a complete answer. But as Christians, we do. We believe that God is the great designer. everybody how you doing it's amazing that something small can impact something so great like a battery for instance right something small impacts something great and um here we go now let me see where was i at oh that's right moral relativism now moral relativism is a fancy term okay it means what's right for you is right for you but doesn't have to be right for me now what creates, which creates this weird thing. Moral relativism creates a moral looseness that lets us live how we want and it vilifies anyone that says that we are wrong, especially God. If God gets in the way of, what, of how we want to live our life, then guess what? He can't exist. But this brings us to the last point to consider with God, and it's this. It's called the embodiment of morality. Because here's the thing, moral relativism is a weak worldview that fails, fails under its own weight. And here's what I mean. What happens when you do run into something that you think is wrong? What about children that are starving in other countries because the government is neglecting them? What about the Holocaust? Was that okay because Hitler thought it was okay? What about things like rape and domestic abuse and molestation? Are, are those okay if those people think it's okay? I would say that all of us would have at least pause when it came to those things and, um, and so many other things. And we would say, no, those are wrong things. But how could we say that? On what grounds do we have a right to say something is right or wrong or evil 
or good in a morally relative worldview. And more importantly, where does this moral compass find its true north for rightness? You, you may be able to hang on to the thread of possibility that things can explode into existence in perfection. You might have a, a thread of it. But how do you explain human morals and emotions and feelings? Those can't explode out of that. And scientists will try to explain it by saying all of these things are chemical reactions in our brains. But as Dr. Tim Keller once said, he says that if, as evolutionary scientists say, what our brains tell us about morality, love, and beauty is not real, if it is merely a set of chemical reactions designed to pass on our genetic code, then so is what their brains tell them about the world. Then why should they trust them? And the answer is they shouldn't. And we shouldn't trust that either. Listen, we'll talk next week all about evil and suffering. And you're not going to want to miss that next week. But the fact that we are, that there is good in this world is an even greater problem to somebody, somebody that doesn't believe in God. Because what do you do with, a, with good in our world with a moral relativistic worldview? Without a moral authority, our world would be even morally bankrupt than it is right now. I want you to consider this quote from an atheist and a secularist by the name of John D. Steinrucken. And John D. Steinrucken once said that although I am a secularist, atheist, if you will, I accept that the great majority of people would be morally and spiritually lost without religion. Those who doubt the effect of religion on morality should seriously ask the question, just what are the immutable moral laws of secularism? Be prepared to answer if you are honest, that such laws simply do not exist. The best answer we can, we can ever hear from secularists to this question is a hodgepodge of strained relativist talk of situational ethics. They can cite no overriding authority other than that of fashion. For the great majority in the West, it is the Judeo-Christian tradition which offers a template. So for any person, really wanting to seek the truth from a worldview absent of God, the embodiment of morality is impossible to wriggle away from. There must be a greater moral ethic that supersedes everything we feel and everything we want to give us a baseline of good by which to measure it from. And what Mr. Steinrucken would call religion, some people would call a moral lawgiver. But I want to be specific I want to be personal because what he is describing is God. Unlike someone that doesn't believe in God, as Christians, we have a solid basis where morality comes from. We believe that God exists as supreme and transcendent and divine. And he is the creator of the universe and everything in it. That includes our universe, what holds us together and the morals by which we live. A man by the name of Luke wrote this book called the book of Acts in, um, in, in the Bible. And, and, and this guy by the name of Paul actually recites this. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's speaking. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. My friends, God is real. He exists. His fingerprints are on everything. 
But the key is what we do with the evidence. As Middlebrook wrote, he says, the fingerprints of God have become exceedingly evident to anyone who is willing to search for them. My friends, you don't need a master's in cosmology or physics or biology or chemistry to see this. God has made it abundantly clear through the most obvious ways in our world that he does exist. The writer of Psalms 19 would say this in verse 1. He'd say, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God is literally everywhere we look. In the existence of the universe, in the exactness of everything, in the embodiment of morality. But who cares? I mean, really, who cares? Even if all this science stuff and moral reasoning is true, who cares? Because we are more than just robots that run off of data. We are human beings that have a mind and a heart and a soul. And when the world around us feels as if we're going sideways, we need more than facts and figures to get by. What we really need comes down to a one-syllable word with five letters, and that's faith. I believe, I believe that God didn't give us a neatly solvable equation or an experiment to conduct to prove his existence because he wants us to live and to have faith, to trust him, even when all of our five senses are not satisfied. Again, what Dr. Tim Keller says is so fitting. He says that faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out and believing what truth is despite what you feel. What we feel will fail us because it doesn't always like what truth has to say. But when we are presented with enough facts that our feelings are put on notice and our faith is asked, asked to come to the front, that can be an intense moment. Because through the eyes of faith, we can start to see the unseeable, feel the untouchable. In fact, listen to what Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says about this in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy, he says. This is really important for us to grasp. And I'll say it this way for us to grab onto, that seeing God requires different eyes. Seeing God requires different eyes. And understanding God through faith, when we do that, we can see him more clearly. When we see through different eyes, when we see through faith, we are accessing not just our minds, but our hearts and our souls. We're making the connection to the entirety of who we are as a person. And it's the whole person that is asking these questions, not just your mind. The great Blaise Pascal, he's a famous French mathematician and physicist and inventor. And he's a writer from the 1600s. He said these great words. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. That right there is the true root of the question of God's existence. 
It is the longing to satisfy the vacancy, the vacuum that is within us all. And even though we can rail against God and ignore all the fingerprints all around us, it doesn't deny the fact that that vacancy, that vacuum still exists inside us. And what we don't need in those moments is a God that's far away and unrelatable. Listen to me. We don't need a professor. We need a savior. We need a personal God that knows us and loves us right where we're at. Which is why what we celebrate at communion every week is so important. It reminds us of the personal Jesus. It brings us back to what we celebrated a week ago at Easter. It brings us back to that. That God loves us so much that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to come from heaven to earth for you and for me. To live a perfect life that we should have lived. To die a death that we should have died to defeat death that we should have tasted and to ascend to heaven to prepare a place for us that we don't belong. But yet he does all of that, not for his own fame, but because he loves us. This God that is real loves us. And he showed that by giving us grace and forgiveness of our sins and it sets us free. Guys, science can't offer you that. Reason can't offer you that. Morality cannot offer you that because they're not designed to do that. Only God, the real, loving, gracious God of the universe can do that. And he has done that for you. He's done that for me. All we need to do is look with different eyes. Look with different eyes. Eyes of faith. Because... Seeing God, it requires different eyes. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I'm going uh, to open us in prayer. You might want to get ready for communion now as a family, but I'm going to open us in prayer and give you an opportunity to, res- to respond to some of that, the reasoning and the rationale and maybe a chance for you to know Jesus. But in order to do that, you'll have to see through different eyes, eyes of faith that God wants to give you right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you overwhelmed of all that we see that you've given us to prove your existence. And God, in our life, there are so many times that we just want, we don't want you to be real because if you're real, we might have to change some stuff. God, I know that there are people out there like that. God, it might mean that we have to change relationships. might mean we have to change jobs or how we're spending our money or really what we're doing with our life. But God, inside us is a vacuum that is begging for you to come in. And I think today that there are people out there that realize that. And God, I want to give them a chance to know you as Savior, know your son Jesus as their Savior. And so right now, wherever people might be at, I just pray if they want to know Jesus, they would simply say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I am apart from you because of my sin. And I have a hole in my life that longs for you. But I have been skeptical of you until today. But today, I believe. I see your fingerprints everywhere. And God, I believe that you are good and that you are real. And that Jesus, you came to die for my sins in my place. And I want you as my Lord and Savior. God, you tell us if anybody prays that prayer, the old is gone, the new has come. They are a new creation And this God that is real is in their life. 
God, would you be with us now as we remember your son Jesus in communion? Help us, Father, to be able to do something with what we've heard. And may we come back and commune together as a body of believers. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. If you've discovered Jesus and this ministry has helped you follow him fully, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give through our Crossroads app or at crossroadsgrace.org give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Now go and follow him fully.